everyone. You're watching M4G Advocacy Media. This is the Journey Series video podcast. I'm Mark, a brown man uh, with black and white beard, bald, black glasses. Today I'm wearing a red shirt in front of a uh, painting and a shelf with some knickknacks. I'm the co-host of, I'm a co-host of Journeys. And I'm Crystal. I'm the other co-host, and I'm a white woman with a black and white striped shirt and bright glasses, and I have a brown background with a uh, canvas painting and a lamp by, uh, on this table. Today, we're speaking with Sheldon Lewis, who's coming to us from Montreal. Was a nonprofit partnership manager uh, with Accessby, and he's going to talk to us about his journey and uh, the work he does with Accessby. Hi, Sheldon. Hi, Hi, Mark and Crystal. It's so good to be here. Thank you We're for joining us. To have you. Yes. Shall I describe myself for the other blind people? Yes, please. Yes, please. I am a white male with lots of hair and just a little bit of gray. I just turned 65 and I'm proud of that. Although my body's feeling a little old. I have a polka dot shirt on and I'm a short guy. <laughs> so I'm here to talk about my story. It's, I, I find it's a very interesting story and, and lots of people will take note and hopefully some people might even be inspired. I was right. born with um, uh, an eye condition that of a genetic, it's genetic foundation. And I'm been slowly going blind all my life. I started off my life with lots of sight and mm. I'm 65 now and all I can see is light. And wow, all I can see is light. All I want to do is see light. I, <laughs> I wish the rest wouldn't disappear, but one day it will. But uh, my journey started a long, long time ago. When I was nine years old, I went to the doctor for the first time. It's an, an hereditary condition. And my mother and her family didn't know that it came from the genes. And um, basically I was born. And then when I became nine, she started to find out why her father was blind and that it might be a genetic condition that was passed down hereditarily. So she took me to a doctor and he told me go to another doctor. And when I was 10, I, I visited an ophthalmologist named Don Boyaner here in Montreal. And he said to me, yes, you have choroideremia. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, it's a slowly degenerative eye condition. And if you're lucky, it'll make you blind later in life. And, or it could be sooner. It depends on how the disease progresses in your eyes. I said, oh my God, I turned to my mother and I looked at her and I said, Ma, how am I going to go into daddy's textile business? 
you know, because I always wanted to be in business with my father, even when I was 10. And uh, I was crying and she was crying and the doctor, he didn't know what to do with himself. And um, well, that was the end of that. No one really talked about it again for a long, long time. My mother felt really, really guilty. Uh, my father didn't know how to approach it. And um, a little later on, you know, I think I was maybe 11 or 12, I went to sleepaway camp. And everybody went to sleepaway camp in Montreal. It was such a big thing to do. And I was really scared because I couldn't see at night. The first manifestations of my eye condition was night blindness. So while there's lights around, I'm okay, you know, somewhat. But when there's no lights around, like in the fields or forest or around the bunks, you know, eh, chasing girls at night and stuff like that, it's it's really dangerous for me. So I was very, very nervous and I didn't enjoy camp at all because of that. Every night was a trauma. The toilets were outside of the bunks. Oh, wow. And, and yeah. I... I you know, my parents didn't tell the counselors or the camp that I had this eye condition. So, and I wasn't brave enough to tell anybody. Uh, I didn't know I could talk to anybody about it because we were so quiet about it at home. And right. so it was, it was tough. And I, many nights spent uh, holding my bladder and, and, and because I didn't want to wake up the counselor at four in the morning <laughs> uh, right. to go to the bathroom and I couldn't even see to go outside, you know, or something like that. And so that was, that was um, my early, early days. And then when I went to high school, I still wasn't talking about it. So none of my friends knew. And it was, it was tough because you know, we would go hang out in friends' basements, like when I was 14 or 15, or we went away on a camping trip with a whole group and, and nighttime came and I was done for, like I had to hide, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything with anybody else because I didn't know how to ask for anybody's help. Mm -hmm. Was a hidden disability that I only, you know, started to understand what to do with much later in my life. Uh, so anyways, school managed, uh, people went to bars. I didn't want to go. I couldn't see anything in the bar. I couldn't find the sofa. I didn't know where the bathroom was. I couldn't go to the bar and get a drink, uh, you know, stuff like that. So I, I stayed away as much as I could and didn't socialize in the same way as my friends were doing. Uh, that was about high school and still nobody knew anything. Then, then oh. I had an opportunity to go to um, textile university in the United States. And um, well, sorry, wow. let me back up a minute. I stopped going to sleepaway camp because of all those problems and started right. working in the city, you know, mm -hmm. for uh, my father's company, 
in his various uh, uh, factories or sales desks or whatever to get experience because I was always going into that business. And uh, so as I had a lot of fun, you know, I hung out with my friends during the summer, but at night, you know, I was, I wanted to go home by the time 9.30 came along, which was when the sun was setting. And then I went to a university in Philadelphia, which was fantastic for me really good. I was lucky. I got a car. I drove down there and get this. I didn't know how to read a map. And I, <laughs> I not only didn't I know how to read a map, I couldn't figure out which way was north and south. And well, I had a friend who was older than me who had, who had gone to this university and he told me, take 87, go around New York, take the New Jersey Turnpike, and get off in Philadelphia Center City. And then you'll find out where you're going to the university. So I was all of 16 years old, got in a car during the day, wasn't at <laughs> night, drove to Philadelphia. Um, you know, I maybe shouldn't have been driving because <laughs> I found out later on that my my reflexes were delayed due to my eye condition by a tenth of a second, but maybe that was a tenth of a second too long. You know, when you're traveling at 60 or 70 miles an hour, a tenth of a second is a long time. And, and I was one of those crazy drivers. So I get to school and um, everything's okay. Still haven't talked about uh, the blindness, and none of my friends knew anything, had the same problems again at night, and meeting women, and et cetera, et cetera. That was a very hard time. I tried my best. I tried to stay in lighted areas, and um, I was very conscious of my situation. But school was fantastic. I became a member of a fraternity and I became the rush chairman, built up uh, a fraternity of 65 people together with all my brothers. And we brought in a sorority sisterhood and uh, that made us the biggest fraternity on campus. It was great. It was, by the time I left three and a half years later, it was, I was so happy. I, I had achieved everything I wanted to achieve, but I still awesome. hadn't told anybody about my eye condition. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then I came back to uh, Montreal because I had an opportunity to open a textile factory in within my father's group of companies. When I came back to Montreal, I was only 20. And the factory was going to be in uh, Drummondville, which was a place about 70 miles from Montreal and all French. And Montreal is a French and English uh, community. And uh, most of the rest of Quebec is mostly French, a French community. So uh, I was at a second, a second loss, but I managed. I opened a factory, 
I learned how to make yarn because it was a yarn mill. I learned how to do cut and sew for drapery and bedspreads. I learned how to knit fabric on big knitting machines. I had about 100 employees work for me, and I was only 21 or 22. It was, it was you know, a, a time of my life that was specially difficult and a real challenge. I rose up to the challenge. I, I like challenges. I didn't have a choice. We made all these investments, and I was... I was the guy on the spot and I had to make it happen. And I did. Wow. And I'm proud of myself for that. Yeah. Yeah, I would be too. Yeah. It was it was great. But every weekend I worked, I worked from let's say seven in the morning till twelve at night. I had to close the factory at twelve at night because I didn't have any manager. And so I had no life. And I couldn't go to the nightclubs in in uh, Drummondville because number one, everybody spoke French. And number two, I couldn't see. So I I drove to Montreal every weekend, and um, I drove around my old neighborhood, reminiscing and you know remembering all my old friends and blah blah blah. They had a, a lot of people had left Quebec by that time, so. Most some people that were a lot of people that I knew didn't live in Montreal anymore. But one day while I was driving around, I stopped at a friend's house and uh, we were sitting out on the sidewalk and these two women roller skate by. And one of them says, hey, Sheldon, how are you doing? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm making a singles party tonight. Do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and my friend said, no, I'm not going. And I said, hey, what the hell? I, I might as well go, right? <laughs> so I said, sure, I'm coming. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do because of the, the, you know, darkness part. And um, right. it was going to be in a bar. And uh, so I ended up going. And good for me, there was two parts of the party room, a well-lit part. And there was a dark part where the bar was. And um, what, what I decided to do was I wore a shirt and a tie and a sports jacket and gray pants. And I looked all, you know, spiffy and I wanted to make a good impression and, and find my, you know, a girlfriend. And um, I walked into the bar and I saw someone there with red hair. I could see red hair, but I couldn't see like their face or bodies right. or anything right. like that. So I walked over to the person with red hair and I said, hi, you know, I, I think uh, like I thought she was somebody else. And she said to me, I'm not that person. I don't know you. And I walked away all like humiliated and, and flustered. And I got a drink anyway, so that was lucky. And I walked back out into the lighted area and I saw her standing there. So I went over to apologize. And it turns oh. out that she knew this girl that also had red hair that I thought she was. And uh, when I told her her name, she said, oh, yeah, people used to call us sisters. So we started mm -hmm. off our conversation and she became my future wife. That's that's how I met my wife when I was 23. 
And we got married when I was 24. The first thing I had to tell my wife when we when I met her after three weeks, when I knew this was a serious thing, was about my eye condition. I told her, and she said to herself, boy, I know this one blind guy. I'm going to call him. And so she calls up that guy, and it turns out to be my cousin. And that man was also blind from the same eye, eye condition. And he was their family's insurance broker. That's how small Montreal's world is. And yeah. so she got the lowdown from him. And, um, <clears throat> and then, well, I started in business and things were rolling along, you know, and the mills were there in Drummondville. And then I decided I needed to go for a new uh, diagnosis. And there was this famous doctor in um, Boston named Elliot Burson at the Montreal, I mean, at the uh, Massachusetts Eye and Ear Hospital. And he took me in and um, he told me, no, you don't have retinitis pigmentosa because that's what my mother always called it. You have choroideremia. So that's better. You'll go blind later in your life. Isn't that good? Ah, I was so happy. I walked out of his office. I went down the street. I did the leprechaun skip, you know, when, when you try and touch <laughs> one, one foot to the back of your other leg. I couldn't do it very well. <laughs> I, I, met, I met this guy who was begging for money. I gave him 20 bucks. You're talking about in 1985 uh, uh, or something. Mm -hmm. I just... And um, so I was really happy about that. And then as my, my vision started to deteriorate quite a bit, you know, my brain still thought that I could see a lot, but my peripheral vision went first. So basically what that means is everything around this area of my eyes or underneath or on top was becoming blurry or had pockets of no vision and, and, and had pockets of some remaining vision. So, um, <clears throat> but my brain thought I could still see. So I was still driving and, uh, and until I was 30 and basically I had to give it up. I had had too many accidents and uh, I, I got really nervous and I realized that I couldn't see enough. So I gave up driving. That was really, really hard. I was very much into driving. I was very much into cars. I loved speed. I loved acceleration. I loved the way the car's parts work together with each other. I knew every car on the street. I knew the sound of the cars. I could identify them by their sounds. I loved cars. I had to give that up. Then, you know, by that time, I had already had children, uh, two kids. And I remember my son, my son was four and the other one was just born. And he's also a boy. And um, I, I had to tell, my wife had to tell my son, take daddy's hand, he needs to ha some help to see. And 
I looked at him and thought, oh, that's so hard of a message to hear. But thank God that we started at, at that young age to tell him about and them about my eye condition and my eyesight, because now for them, a blindness is just like a normal part of my life and part of my life with them and their kids. And uh, they're so helpful. And, and so is my wife. And uh, it, it, it's amazing how much my family has rallied around me. So then um, in, in, uh, nine, in, in when I was 34, I unfortunately contracted arthritis. And until that time, I was still able to do sports. Like I love skiing, I love biking, I love sailing. Um, I liked racquetball, uh, tennis sometimes and play baseball with the guys on the Saturdays. I couldn't play very well, but because I couldn't see the ball very well, but that's besides the point. I, I, I tried, you know, and uh, <clears throat> by that time, people still didn't know I had this eye condition. Very, very many people didn't know. And um, so when I got arthritis, I really had to quit all the sports because my, it was too hard on my body to exert, you know, with too much energy, hurt my joints too much. And so I, I've gone through a lot of um, uh, grieving about loss and I've had to lose a lot of things in my life. I still have a lot, but I've lost a lot. And my, the trick now for me, for me is to find what I can still have fun and enjoy and get happiness out of doing. So it's, it's different for everybody else. They could just go do what they want and just look and see and go. And I have to think and, and figure out how I'm going to do it and, and how it's going to be. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Then uh, I lost a lot of sight during my 30s, but my brain still thought I could see. So I didn't adopt the use of a white cane until... I fell and broke my leg. I was in my 40s. And um, well, in the meantime, I was doing business. I was traveling all over the world, China, England, United States. I had uh, wow. a lot of people working for me. It was, I had a big business and I was the product development manager and it was a family business. My father was in it. My son later came into it, and uh, but mm -hmm. not in the 30s. That was much later on. Mm -hmm. So in, in my 40s, I, I fell and broke my leg on the way to see the cars that lined up on one of the streets in Montreal around the time of the Grand Prix. You know, all these fancy cars would line up and everybody would come down to this uh, closed off street and the bars would be open and everybody would have a, be having a big party. And so I was on my way there and I was in a taxi and um, the, we were stuck because there was a football game and there were, all the spectators were going to the game. So I said to myself, I'm going to get out of the taxi. I didn't want to sit here and pay like an, an extra $10 to watch all these people go by. 
So I, I paid him off. I got out of the car and I started walking there and I went through a parking lot that was on two levels, but I didn't know it was on two levels. And I remember at the last second before I fell that I was looking at someone down over there and he was very small and, and he wasn't at my level. And, uh, and then I tripped over the, the little six inch um, step that they had and fell down three feet, broke my leg, rolled over. I'm lucky I didn't hurt myself worse. Um, no. <laughs> phoned my wife, told her I can't come to dinner. I just broke my leg. <laughs> and um, that wasn't, it wasn't a good thing. It was, it was a hard recovery to make. Um, I had surgery and stuff like that, but I quickly adopted the white cane after that. And, you know, using a white cane for blind people is it's the last thing we want to do. It's humiliating. It means we, it, we have to ask for help. It makes us stand out in the crowd. It's like nobody who's going blind slowly, like in, in, in my case, wants to use the white cane until they have to. And, you know, intelligence says I should have adopted it sooner. Stupidity says I waited too long. <laughs> and uh, well, anyways, I started to use the white cane and I've been using it ever since. And um, now I had to close my textile business, which was, as I said, kind of large. It spanned over six continents. I traveled 15 weeks a year. Uh, I couldn't see in the airports. Every time I went to the airport, it got darker and darker. Seems like they were turning down the lights, but it was more like my eyes were getting worse and worse. And I got to a point when I get to buying the products that I, the company was going to be selling, I had to ask other people for help to describe. And then when I got to the sales call, I couldn't really present the products that I was selling because I didn't know how to describe them in a way that the customers would understand. And then um, what was what was really frustrating was when the customers would toss around my five or 10 fabric samples and say, this one is good. No, I don't like that one. And how much is this one? And, you know, I couldn't follow that at all. So being blind and a textile salesman didn't go together for me. And during the time of the last 10 years of having my textile business and what I thought was eyesight, I was thinking, how can I give back to the community? And it was, it was difficult to, to figure out how to do that because the business kept me to the grindstone and I didn't have any time for um, you know extracurricular activities which I should have made time for but I didn't and in 2018 we closed the family business and I found myself with um, not too many skills uh, only 62 thinking about what am I going to do next I didn't feel ready to retire I didn't feel like I was 
you know, done. And I still wanted to contribute. So I started to reach out to my local rehabilitation center, picked up some volunteer work for uh, donor thank you calls and uh, a little bit of don donation solicitations and, and COVID rolled along. So we couldn't really go there and, and do activities, yeah. you know, in the center and, and stuff like that. But finally, I, I got really lucky. They trained me very well at that center to use my screen reader. And that's how I found Accessibility. And um, so I can get into the, the last part of my life afterwards, or I can continue right now. What do you prefer? Uh, well, um, if you don't mind, if we can go back to when you were discussing your children and the positive implications of how you taught them early on about your blindness and what that entailed. Um, I definitely see a major difference in a generation that's able to explain and gently teach children that there's nothing wrong, but this is what they need, you know. And then a generation that's like, no, 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 that we're just, we're just gonna hide them away. We're don't <laughs> don't look at that. Don't you know? There's a definite. And it's so awesome. The kids today, most some of the kids today, are a lot more receptive, and they're, it makes a huge huge difference. The families are lucky that uh, mm -hmm. when they can talk about this stuff either for the children or for the parents, whoever has the problem, it's really fantastic when the family can all rally around each other and support each other. And right. um, it makes everything just natural. It, nothing is, uh, oh, 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 you know, what do we do now? Or something like that. Yeah. No, it's yeah. all, um, my, my, it's we, went to a, we went to a restaurant the other day and my two-year-old granddaughter said she had to go to the bathroom. So I said, do you want me to take you? And she said, sure. So I said, give me your hand. So she took my hand. Now she doesn't know how to lead me to the bathroom and I can't lead her to the bathroom. So my <laughs> son, he took my other arm and kind of pulled on my, on my sleeve to guide me, go this way, go that way, you know, do this, do that. And it was like, that's fantastic. And, and then when we left the restaurant, the grandchildren were fighting over my white cane to play with it. <laughs> yeah. It was so nice. It was like yeah. really special. Yes. It makes a huge difference. And not only the person with the disability's life, but also theirs because they're not so, it's not so awkward for them. And it's ingrained into their upbringing of what, you know, their future is going to be and more and more people, as we've talked about before, more and more people are going to be disabled. And, you know, and we, it's almost a must that we have to get everybody, not just children, used to that kind of life. I know. Um, and, 
it's really, it's a wonderful thing. Yes. Yeah, and that's, you know, there are obviously good and bad sides to technology and our global globalization and stuff like that. But that's one of the good things is that it's in some ways opened our eyes and made us made some of us realize how how similar we are, even though we're in different parts of the world or and how much our experiences are the same and given us an understanding of uh of that's that's a very interesting thought because it's really true that everybody everywhere is the same no matter what race they are and it's unfortunate that people can't see that it's hard you know like in my case people are scared to talk to me you know an, an unintended consequence of being blind is that people get scared of me so they when when i'm with my wife they'll smile to her or they'll talk to her they won't come over and ask me any questions you know, and and that's what technology helps to understand that everybody has the same issues, but it doesn't mean that people are going to accept what those issues are and actually, you know, live with them or right. knowing about them or being nice about them. The sadness of that is that you know, there are so many issues and problems around the world. And in our perspective countries, you know, U.S. and Canada, um, that need to be solved. And, you know. Um, no one, no one is. The world is hurting themselves by pushing smart minds away because they look different, talk different, see different, whatever yep. it might be, you know? Yep, it's really true. That's what, that's the one good thing about the remote world of today is that some people who wouldn't normally be able to go and work can actually find themselves work, either being self-employed or finding work from employers who are who are much more easy or relaxed about uh, hiring them on a remote basis than if they have to come to the office. Right. Right. And the other good thing is, even if you do, it's not like a time where if everyone rejects your resume in a given city, you're not restricted to that city. You can apply for a job across the world if you want to. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so inconsequential, um, inconsequential, uh, sorry, <laughs> unintended consequences are, are very obvious and sometimes hidden. Like for example, the other day I was talking to someone and I was with my wife, but I wasn't looking at the person's face. I was looking away from them. And she told me that they looked nervous and they weren't sure what to do because I wasn't looking at them. I thought it was, you know, I, I, 
I wasn't, you know, interacting with them in, in less of a manner because I was looking away, but it made them very nervous. So maybe they weren't interacting with me in, in at their fullest potential because they were nervous. And then what do they say to me? Hey, why don't you look at me? You know, if they, and if, and if they would just speak or say a word, then I would know I was looking in the wrong place and try to adjust my, uh, my, my line of sight, (laughs) so to speak. Um, I'd have to say that on a, a level of not blindness, but like Mark and I have a taxia, which is a uh, it affects your muscles, and that includes your speech muscle, your you know your esophagus, and all these muscles in your throat, and your vocal cords, and your eyes as well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know, our eyes might. You know, it, when we're tired or sick or, you know, whatever, if there's other stresses going on, our eyes might have more of a hard time focusing on what we want to, you know, and it might not even be both eyes, it would just be one, but right. still would make people uncomfortable. So that's the situation of maybe you can tell us verbally, but, uh, can't do anything about that. It's not that we can control. Right. So, you know, there's a different, I know that's not what you're talking about, but that's another side of it. Absolutely it is. You know, it reminds me of um, an unint- another unintended consequence is I was talking to this gentleman with um, a neural disorder. And mm-hmm. he told me, I love talking to you, Sheldon. Because you can't see my eyes twitching and my face twitching and, you know, and you're not getting turned off by all the things that I'm doing. And I, I, this is great. I love it. He says to me. Yeah. So there's, there's unintended consequences on both sides, good and bad from everything that we do, whether we're disabled or not. Yeah. Um. We've, Crystal and I have talked about this, and I guess everybody in our community kind of goes through this. What, and how did your friends and family react when they finally, like the ones who didn't know you had this condition, when they finally uh, learned that this was a thing? That was a good question. I was I was at 33, I think, and I had to go uh, pick up my sister in Philadelphia. So I flew there and I and I met with all my friends from the fraternity and um, and I told them and they were shocked. They couldn't believe it. But none of them have ever uh, they all anytime I ever see them. They're, they're offering their help and they don't, they don't, they're not turned off by it at all, or they're not, you know, nervous, made nervous from it, or, or it's been, I was really well received. I was, I was very thankful for that. And yeah. still am. I'm still friends with them. I love how, how has it been for like, you? Oh, goodness. <laughs> mm. Um. 
it's been a mixed bag of, you know, a lot of support in the beginning, you know, uh, and then eventually people started doing their own thing. And, you know, I was in like a, you know, I was doing work. It was more like being a robot. Mm. And like we talked about as well, that, you know, you go to work and, you know, you do like for me, web design, but real in actuality was more about checking them checking a box. Right. And me being disabled. So they were doing a good thing. And I'm I'm not saying that I didn't get a lot of benefits and a lot of uh, skill in that area at that time, but it was definitely not the kind of work I wanted to do helping people and the kind of people I wanted to be around. And so, it, you know, I'm working on finding those people and doing... Mm. Doing the kind of work I want to do going forward. Mm. I understand that. That's where Accessibility has been a fantastic employer for me. Um, they're, they're, everybody is so supportive. I love this team and the people I work with. And I'm, I'm really lucky I met them. They're the, the, the first, another job that I had after I closed the textile company the owner had um, neuropathy and he couldn't feel his feet, which I can't, it's so hard to imagine, but uh, I thought I had this special bond with him, but it didn't, it didn't work out that way. He was, he was all business. And uh, I guess, you know, maybe people are always all business, but friends are friends if you're lucky. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, uh, no, sometimes, I mean, I'm definitely, uh, there's, you know, sometimes when you're not ready to admit certain things about yourself, you know, like, because you know, you won't be accepted, tend to mask things. And maybe it was his way of just putting up a brave face so that no one could see his vulnerability and, you know, cause that sort of stuff, people can tend to exploit that stuff. If you have the wrong people around you. Yes, yeah. definitely. You're right. Yeah. right a lot that. of people, and that's a huge conversation in their disability community. When and do I even admit or disclose that I have this and this and this, because I mean, when you can't hide the things visually, that's one thing. But when you can, uh, and you have the opportunity to not show people who you are, it can have an advantage. Um, well, that's what people thought. But I would argue that it having a disability and seeing the way people treat you Having a di visual disability is evident of what kind of people they are, and what kind. That's like I was telling you a minute ago. Those are the kind of people I want to 
go with and who I want to converse with. Hmm. You know, it, it's interesting you should say that because, um, and you know, there are I split people into three three kinds of categories: ones hmm. who don't know how to help me, ones who are want to help but you know they're semi there and semi not and ones who really help a lot and it's interesting how people but i take help from anybody it's just interesting how people fall into categories and i just have to recognize them for what they are and watch out for myself if they're from you know that first category and know that I'm in really good hands if they're from the third category. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was a good leading back from our break, eh, Crystal? It sure was. We definitely needed it. <laughs> For sure. Stay tuned. Um, we'll be airing part two of this interview next week. Thank you guys so much for watching. We appreciate it. Bye.